welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. Hey everybody, today on the pod we are joined by William Matthews. William is a recording artist, a host of the popular podcast The Liturgist, and is an advocate for social change, fighting against racism, voter suppression, climate change, and more. In our conversation, we go deep into the good, true, and beautiful of Star Trek, and I try to get William to sell me on why I should be a Trekkie. We discuss philosopher Rene Girard's theories of mimetic desire and scapegoating, And William explains why certain voices should be excluded from the conversation, not because they're conservative or liberal, left or right, but rather because they are bad faith actors being weaponized against all of us. Let's dive in. What, he, what William Barr is trying to do is he's trying to rewrite the narrative from the place of the conquerors. But yes. what he fails to realize is that our, our history will be written by, by the marginalized and the people. Because what the civil rights movement particularly, well, let's say the Emancipation Proclamation all the way to the civil rights movement, what it did, and this is why black people are going to always be the thorn of the flesh to dominate white culture, is we unmask white culture and dominant culture for what it really is. And now because of decades of, of black people beginning to flourish, beginning to, to uh, own their stories, beginning to tell their stories, it's, it's a tsunami wave of, of, of black stories that have been, and black resistance that is overpowering the dominant narrative and myth. That, Amer- uh, that America has created. And that's what's happening in this historic moment right now with people uh, and the protests and acknowledging systemic racism is actually we're saying no longer are we letting the conquerors rule um, our perceptions of reality or, or their false revisionist narratives of history. Again, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to, to talk to you. I feel like uh, I've had a few <laughs> lately where I've talked to someone where I've heard their voice like a fair amount and feel like I kind of know them, but it's like a total false, false relationship. Um, <laughs> but uh, the internet will in, do that in my head. You're, you're kind of my friend. So that's fun. And we, well, we've had some limited Twitter, Twitter interaction. True, but um, yeah, I, I appreciate it, man. Uh, yeah, so the show we're kind of talking about the the good, the true, and the beautiful, um, and uh, just using those as lenses to look at um, everything around us. And I like to start out asking, because um, I feel like this is almost like a bucket for them in a sense. But um, growing up, uh, what would cause you to feel a deep sense of wonder about the world? Yeah, I grew up with a very strong um, curiosity. My dad really cultivated curiosity in me and my siblings. Um, He was constantly putting us in new environments, 
environments that were made to stretch us. Um, I mean, I was I was swimming really well by two years old. Um, oh wow, that's awesome. Yeah, um, he would take us down the street to the park in Detroit, and I learned how to play tennis. Right, or he would he would stretch us kind of beyond like even some of our like cultural values to try different types of foods um, mm-hmm. and to not judge it and to find things you like about it. Um, what music was like that. Uh, literature, reading. Um, so I feel like I grew up in a household that just valued curiosity. And I think that was my window into wonder, you know? Like, yeah, it was my so window. He, I mean, he was, he was really cultivating that as a value for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My dad was cultivating um, curiosity, beauty, and wonder um, about God, about the universe. Um, we were a big Star Trek family, too. So, I mean, he would, like, sit me down uh, in the basement when he would, like, uh, he would be working on different things. And he would put on, uh, like, videotape recordings of, like, all these old shows, whether they were Westerns or, like, Little Rascals, Shirley Temple, Star Trek. Um, and so I would just, like, sit with my dad while he was kind of tinkering in the, in the basement and, like, watch these TV shows that just would like expand my 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 brain and my horizons and so yeah I think I have to give it up to my dad for giving me like a real sense of beauty wonder and awe. That's awesome, um, and it's a perfect transition into. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you about Star Trek because I I feel like uh, I don't really know that I know of. I don't know any like Trekkies, but I feel like you post about it a lot. Way too and, much uh, probably. <laughs> no, it's good and it it's been like uh like I grew up and I saw, you know, I would see some next generation and you know, a movie here or there, but I don't I was never like way in. I think part of it is I didn't love like the um part uh, like something about the, I like the grittiness of like Star Wars or something like the way that it, that the universe felt a little more like uh, lived in. But I think part of that's just because, uh, you know, it's supposed to be the future in Star Trek. And so <laughs> stuff's cleaner or something. I don't know. But it's like too much like button. I pushed a button and I, I fixed something. But I remember seeing some really interesting episodes and um, you've been tweeting out some stuff from some of the newer shows and just little snippets and i uh i don't know i'm realizing there's a lot um a lot more there that i need to dig into so what what draws you to star trek like what sell me on it yeah um so gene roddenberry who is the creator of star trek he had a pretty unique philosophical vision uh of human history but also our future he he was theorizing a world in which humanity had overcome a lot of our baser instincts and had put down war, famine, disease, and poverty, had overcome most of those things um, and transcended them. And so he theorized this universe where our ability to lay down our propensity for war would actually cause us to want to travel the galaxy and create technology to explore strange new worlds and new civilizations, seeking peace and exploration, you know. And so Star Trek was really much a, a optimistic vision of the future, and especially mm-hmm. being created in the 1960s during so much social upheaval, Gene put the first interracial cast on television. 
Um, that's what Star Trek did back in the 1960s. I mean, you yeah. had um, you had an Asian American, a Russian American, a black woman. Um, of course, you had white men. You had you had so much diversity in the the cast and crew of the original Star Trek Enterprise, and and that was his point. And there was um, there's a fun little story. Uh, Nicole. Uh, Nichelle Nichols, who plays Lieutenant Yahura, was she was the first black female um, in that role and in, in the Star Trek world. Uh, side note: Also, Star Trek did the first interracial kiss between her and Captain Kirk. The first time mm-hmm. on American television an interracial couple had ever kissed was on Star Trek. Um, right. She had wanted to quit the show, and then she had met Dr. Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King had told her. Um, Star Trek is the only show I let my daughter stay up and watch, and it's so important for you to be on this show because you represent what black people look like in the future. Mm. Um, and so she brought that back to Gene Roddenberry, and that you could tell it really had an impact on them, and it, it pretty much became the core philosophy moving forward for all the Star Trek movies, TV shows. Um, it's this universe uh, that is more dealing in uh, philosophical concepts. That's why the Star Wars thing is interesting, because Star Wars is just action fantasy that's not based in any type of reality um star trek has a has a moral guiding principle and it's wrestling through moral quandaries um and philosophical conundrums on the regular like that's the entire thrust of the show so i think it was packaged a little slower and a little more intellectual which i think if you're into it, you're into it. But if you're not, you're like, I just want to see laser fights, right? Like, I just want to see... Uh, and I think that's kind of like Star Wars kind of becoming the bigger franchise uh, was just that. It was just kind of mind-numbing entertainment in that way. And and even George Lucas would admit that. I've seen a conversation between uh, Gene Roddenberry's son and George Lucas kind of talking about this reality. Star Tra- Star Wars was just very much... You know, of course, they. I mean, you had some themes around it, but the themes yeah, were... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more mythic. And yeah, it's more almost like a fantasy. It's just skin yeah, does exactly. Where Star Trek it's, was, it's like a fantasy western. Yes. Yeah. And Star Trek. Well, the original series of of Star Trek I, has a lot of western uh, feels to it as well. I think, like in terms of the the format and how they shot it, I think that was uh-huh. just the the template of the day. Um, yeah, yeah. And they, you know, they they use that format to communicate a lot of truths in it. But um, yeah, I. It's a frustrating thing because I think when you really look at the legacies of both, um, you know, Star Trek is truly sci-fi. It, it is everything that is amazing about sci-fi. It's theorizing about a better world and a future that's unimaginable to us currently. It also gave us so much technology. Uh, Star Trek also, so many astronauts and people that signed up for NASA um, were influenced, they said, by watching Star Trek as kids. Um, hmm. I mean, the iPad is pretty much an invention from Star Trek. <laughs> like, There's so <laughs> much tech, actual technology and part of our day-to-day lives. Um, and even the, the modern space program was modeled after Star Trek. To the point where even uh, this new space force that Donald Trump is trying to uh, push forward they they stole the emblem from Star Trek I, yeah, for I Space that, Force yeah. um, so I don't know it, it's the original and, and I'm in love with all the I'm, I love all the shows some more than others Deep Space Nine is probably my favorite then the next generation then original series and Voyager uh, and then the new show, Star Trek Discovery, is epic. They they literally shot it like a movie. It's one of the most action-packed, great story arc from whole seasons beginning to end. Um, I, I love... I go back and rewatch them all the time. And then the is new there Picard. Like an, is there an order that one should approach them in? You know, Star Trek's a hard one because it's 30 years of, uh, you know... 
original series, sorry, I have to count, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery, Picard. There are seven Star Trek shows from the last 30 years. And then there's about 12 to 14 movies motion picture films maybe maybe 14 15 once you add you know more of the newer ones uh that were kind of the jj abrams renditions which are kind of like a different alternate timeline um so it's it's hard because I, I don't know where to tell people to start yeah. uh you could start chronologically i wouldn't necessarily do that i probably would highlight this i would say start season two of the original series go through that just season two and then of the of the like the old the old old, old ones start maybe okay. start there they're weird they're they're so different they're so seventies I mean sixties and seventies and and so abstract and just the way they're shot it's just they're kind of cool too they're I would start there and then I would start season three of the next generation um, and maybe why why not start at the beginning. <clears throat> Well, it, there's always kind of a thing. Star Trek shows aren't always the best the first season or two. Okay. But usually by season three or four, they question. they pick up so much. Um, and that's the other thing. You kind of like, you commit to the series. So I think I think if you start there and watch some of the highlights and best, you can then go back and rewatch some of the older episodes. There were good episodes in some of those earlier seasons, um, but uh, they were still trying to find their way, so to speak. And yeah. you could tell by like season three, it hits its stride. It was even like nominated for Emmys, Next Generation was, because of how how good the acting was and the storylines um start season three there um same with deep space and i could say start deep space nine from the beginning all seven seasons are incredible um and then voyager is the same way it's like a lost in space version of star trek and then i don't know discovery picard just you could start those from the beginning those are very well written from the beginning so i would really i think in this time where everything feels really dark and it feels um even sometimes hopeless, I think what Star Trek has offered is, at its best, it's brought a sense of optimism about the future and a sense of hope. And uh, it has, like I said, helped people work through real moral conundrums and philosophical issues that resonate. Like, there's a lot of themes around um, xenophobia and around racism um, in a lot of the episodes. And I don't know. I think it feels more relevant now than it ever has. And so I'm happy that they're relaunching um, the whole Star Trek franchise. They've got three more shows in the works, brand new Star Trek shows, CBS is developing, on top of the two ones that are already on air. Um, And so, yeah, they're really rebirthing the whole franchise right now, which is really exciting to me. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Yeah, I feel like my kids would probably dig it. They're, like, super into, you know, everything sci-fi and fantasy oh, they and whatever. Are? Um, so I might, I might have to start in with, with them. My wife yeah. will not, not, not be excited, but <laughs> yeah, my mom um, wasn't the biggest uh, fan of it either, <laughs> but she would watch it with <laughs> us. They are, uh, um, they have a few, they have these things called short treks, which are kind of like little 10 minute little things. One or two of them are animated and now they're, they're about to drop a, a new Star Trek show that's completely animated. Okay. Um, it's called Lower Decks. That's about to come out too. So yeah, there's there's some. I think your kids would would really dig some Star Trek. So cool. Um, yeah, as I was like uh, doing some research to to talk to you today and looking through some of the Star Trek stuff, I found uh, some of the Vulcan philosophy was uh, yeah super rad. Like so, uh, the whole uh, infinite diversity through infinite combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm real into that. Um, and then this quote from uh, 
Gene Roddenberry saying, mankind will reach maturity on the day it learns to value diversity of life and ideas. Ooh, um, that is a good one. I've heard that one before, yeah. And then this one uh, is in an episode. Miranda talking to Spock. And she says, I understand, Mr. Spock. The glory of creation is in its infinite diversity. And he says, and the ways our differences combine to create meaning and beauty. Ooh, um, yeah. yeah. So I'm super into that. And I, I, this is making me want to watch the show because, um, yeah, I think those ideas, I don't, I mean, I, I think I would have heard that when I was younger and been like, cool. I don't know. Like, I, I don't yeah. know. I, I, I was too, um, and I, this kind of gets at, at, at some of this, like the way you balance goodness, truth, and beauty. But I, I, I was too much, way too much truth, you know, when I was younger and, hmm. um, so those differences to me weren't it was something to to be sorted out right to figure out well, yeah. what's the right what's the right difference what's yeah uh, and also too i think there's a on, on top of that there's a sense of um we want to be heroes so bad and mm-hmm. star trek does this interesting thing of showing you you know how at times you could be the hero and at times you you trying to be the hero makes you the oppressor Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's, there's real, like it is, it's showing you life and, and, and truth from multiple angles rather than, you know, sometimes the action fantasy stuff is just about being the hero, which I think that's why psychologically we love it a little bit more. These action packed West, even Westerns are like that. Right. But the thing we don't acknowledge about that whole genre that our parents lived and died on was that whole, uh, genre was enforcing a type of white supremacy and a type of rugged individualism or, or fantasy of what that, that era represented of that type of rugged individualism that uh, isn't healthy mindsets to carry into relationships or into, uh, into the world. And so Star Trek had a, f- a funny way of, of, yeah, pointing those inconsistencies out. Um, I mean, the, you pointed out the Vulcan philosophy um, and Spock. Uh, there's something interesting about this character because the Vulcan philosophy where, you know, Vulcans as a species were very emotional, kind of out of control and primal. And I think it was a, a Vulcan mystic or monk named Saruk uh, who pretty much decided to base everything out of logic. And and this deep meditative like this deep meditative culture kind of emerged that began to suppress emotions for the sake of logic. And they built a whole culture around it after hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, An interesting thing about the Spock character is uh, he's half human. I I don't know if he's the first Vulcan half human um, because his father, Sarek, um, married um, someone from Earth. But there's something interesting because there seems to be this wrestle in him between his... Vulcan identity and his humanity and uh, and trying to find the logic in his emotions and and what his emotions can teach him and so it's this like long arc that you see all through the original series you see it all through the movies and then all the later movies and also Discovery season two actually picks up um kind of an origin story for Spock and so you see it there again like now decades later is this wrestle between um how does one handle their emotions and also uh doing the morally right thing or what is what is that what does that even mean and so spock is constantly not just wrestling but but maybe even learning how to integrate his emotions into his his need for order structure and logic and um yeah and i think i always as a kid resonated with that 
story because I grew up in a pretty ordered environment. We had freedom, but my parents were very like structured and strict on some levels. And um, there was always the need to uh, weigh everything out, think everything throughout. Like my dad, we could talk ourselves out of punishments. He would be like, if you give me a logical explanation for why you did what you did, <laughs> you won't get spanked. And so I, I, I learned how to state my case at a very young age. <laughs> and, and, and my dad would push back on me. And, um, and I think that's why I love kind of like, I always love like debates and kind of intellectual sparring a bit because um, I think ideas matter, not just what we feel about stuff. And so I resonate a lot with that character of like the need to have like an ordered, structured, logical approach to everything, but also what do I do with my emotions that feel irrational and illogical? And so I think, you know, in light of that, that character was really profound. The data character in Next Generation, who's this android who can't, who has no emotions yet for some reason feels a, uh, a need to uh, want to be more human and want to what does that mean to be human and wanting to tell jokes or wanting to have a sex life <laughs> and like and so you see this android constantly going you know uh, discovering what it means to be fully human and what does it mean to inhabit the body and uh, I don't know those stories I feel like they have they've given me more of a moral compass or just as much of a moral compass than my Christianity has. <laughs> Um, in fact, they've been interplayed because I actually see a lot of those same values represented um, in the scripture, um, in particular, the question of how to be human. And um, yeah, and so that's kind of what that world means to me in like a through a visual medium or artistic medium is it helps remind it uses these stories and, and, and characters and these impossible situations to help break me outside of, you know, what I think is possible, but also it helps me fully realize um, yeah, as we're exploring the exterior world, there's also an interior journey we're going on too. And Star Trek has always been interesting to do both. They show you the interior world and the exterior world and how those things, um, those in two distinct journeys, how they, how they interplay. Um, and I don't know, that, that makes sense to me in light of spirituality a lot. Well, let's talk about uh, spirituality a little bit then. Um, so you... Uh, are well known as one of the hosts of the liturgists um and which uh is a podcast that's been at kind of the forefront of a lot of talk of deconstructing faith or faith shifting um but in the middle of that um you guys did a, a couple episodes i guess last season i don't know if it's the same season uh about christianity um and kind of where you guys were all at on it and i really enjoyed the <laughs> The episode where you're just uh, trying to convince um, Michael that he's <laughs> he should um, keep claiming uh, Christianity, <laughs> and uh, I thought it was funny. But I I really liked um, kind of hearing a bunch of where you were, the things that were still grabbing you in it. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Like why? So you've kind of you know you grew up um, Christian. Your dad was a pastor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious, like, what, maybe even through the, that lens of the, the good, the true, the beautiful, like, what you most, which lens you kind of, your Christianity operated out of um, as you were growing up, and then where you feel like it is um, kind of most seen through now. Like, why, I guess, why are you... Um, 
feel like everyone who goes through kind of some sort of deconstruction has to either you bail or you decide like this is why I'm sticking around, even though it's a lot of times a giant pile, you know? I think I've gone around the mountain several times with Christianity. It's one of those things that I think is just so ingrained in me because of my childhood, my uh, parents being in ministry, uh, my grandfather being a missionary. I have uncles and aunts who are ordained ministers. Like God and faith and spirituality and the Bible and Jesus are all things that have, um, so to speak, they've been in my my consciousness. Like it, I don't think I could remove them if I tried. Um, and so the interesting thing about deconstruction, right, is, well, everyone's looks different, but for me, deconstruction, which I've, I realized I had gone through several times in my life, even as a kid, um, I had gone through some different experiences in church, uh, in childhood, or my family has that were really traumatic and they forced us to see God in a bigger way. And, um, and it's funny because that's where the journey always led. It was not as much of a rejection of God, which is totally legitimate. I, I'm not dismissing that for anybody, actually. Um, I just know that that's not where my journey fully has ever been. It's, it's constantly been in seeking more like awareness of, of, of God and knowing that the religious structures I was in didn't not only just didn't have it right, but they were actively caging God in. And when I, even that phrase like God, what is God, right? Like, I mean, I'm thinking I'm talking about the ultimate, um, that ultimate sense of reality, the thing that is moving us forward. Um, I mean, that's language I would use now, but even back then in my childhood or my teenage years, um, I was always searching for the ultimate and constantly willing to, to leave behind any, any structure, any institution, any form of thinking that caged God in. Mm. I think freedom was always my, my compass internally. And every time in church, I, I feel like I constantly ruffled up against structures that were, were oppressive or, or unfreeing. And so, but it, it wasn't just me, it was my family. They, my, everyone in my family has gone through their own journey with, with Christianity and, and finding a God who's more inclusive or more bigger or more wider than, than we thought. So yeah, I, I find that deconstruction is something that happens multiple times in your life, not just one big, you know, traumatic experience that causes you to maybe walk away from the faith forever. Um, and again, if that's what you need to do, I've always been a, a champion, at least in the last six, seven years, I've always been, I've been a champion of that. If you need to walk away and, 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 and it's not, it's not hidden for you. You, can, you have every right in your conscience to walk away and to do that. But for me, I just never, never felt that. I've never done that. Something about the idea of God always called to me, whether even in the abstract, it just, it just called to me. Um, and I've always found that or felt that to be the voice of the Spirit in my life. I had to realize that pain was actually the doorway into the very nature of God. It was like it's through discomfort that you would know the kingdom. Doubt is the doorway to faith, always. Certainty is the idol. Doubt was the question of who am I, where am I? Does this even matter? God, where are you? Like, I don't even know where you're at. I don't feel you. I, I feel so lost and alone and broken in the cosmos. And it's not till I wrestle with the shadow that I truly could see the light. Circular motions of shadow and light, darkness and light. You're gonna go through that, knowing and unknowing certainty and uncertainty, learning God, knowing of God, unlearning of God.
what are some of the I guess as you were like reframing um, what were some of the touch points that were bringing you back around to this whole I, I don't know I don't know what to call it uh, like what what things were you re experiencing or like seeing with new eyes um, I yeah. know that you um, I think uh, we're reading some James Cone, like Liberation Theology, uh, Rene Girard. Yeah. Um, maybe so, some, of the, some of that stuff that was like, kind of blowing your mind, like this is uh, this is a new way to, because like you're saying, it, it's so ingrained in you that you're feeling like, mm-hmm. I can't I can't get rid of this. Is there a different way to experience it? Is it deeper? Yeah. Well, I think one of the early lessons I learned with my family when I was a teenager was that God was not static and that there was always a progressive revelation, that God was constantly moving us forward. I remember having talks with my mother as a teenager, and, and I remember theorizing long before I ever had language for these things, but theorizing to my mom, I was like, well, I was like, when, when God wrote in Genesis, or, you know, that was kind of how I was framing it at the time, you know, about heaven and earth and the stars being created, like, he, he can't break down physics to them. So he's just using language that they would understand, right? To help bring them closer to an understanding as mm-hmm. limited as that language is. I remember having talks like that with my mom at like 15, 16, right? And my mom's like, well, yeah, but what about this? You know, and like pushing back. And, um, and so one of the things we discovered as a family together, that there was progressive revelation. And so we were always open to listening to different thought leaders and people who were um, talking about God in ways in which that felt true and right and good, as you talk about this podcast. Um, And so, I mean, early on, it was like T.D. Jakes. (laughs) That was like progressive for us coming from the Church of God denomination and like listening to somebody like T.D. Jakes on TBN. Christian television network was like, whoa, (laughs) there's like, he just had a way of explaining the gospel that just felt bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. There was guys like Rod Parsley or Mark Sharona, different ones. um, Juanita Bynum, a lot of other preachers. And then as I got older, that's when I started um, like reading books by like Benny Hinn. I remember reading good morning, Holy spirit by Benny Hinn. And right after I started speaking in tongues and that was like a revelation to me. And I'm start, started reading all these charismatic speakers. I stumbled across a Rick Joyner book who wrote the final quest, which is kind of this prophetic vision of, of, you know, I don't know, kind of this eschatological end times thing. And, and that just blew my mind away. I ended up going to Bible school at Morningstar for a little bit because of that and learning the prophetic, uh, and prophetic worship while I was there. Um, and then through there, like listening to Mike Bickle in Kansas City and the IHOP prayer movement and Blue Engle and the call. And like, and I just started surrounding myself with the, these people who carried a progressive revelation that were kind of taking me from glory to glory. And, and in the middle of that, um, and that's, you know, how I, as well, how I ended up uh, going to uh, Bethel and hearing Bill Johnson and reading his books. But, um, also in the middle of that, I was also reading like Greg Boyd. Greg mm-hmm. Boyd was a big um, uh, thinker for me, primarily around his whole cross and the sword and the myth of the Christian nation and the myth of Christian religion, those books. Also, Is God to Blame, uh, that book about um, the heart of God as it relates to God's judgment. What is God's judgment? Is it a punitive thing? And, and just answering some of those questions about evil and suffering and the nature of evil. Uh, I, st- I started getting into Greg Boyd and open theism and started really theorizing and reading that. Um, who else? I think I, I discovered Jonathan Martin through that 
and uh, he introduced me to Brian Zahn, who also, and I think Jonathan Martin actually introduced me to Rene Girard because he preached a sermon uh, back at his old church in Nevada in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, about the peaceable kingdom. And it was based on Rene Girard's work, I See Satan Falls Lightning. And I would always say there were always these major thinkers who came along who kind of like maybe shifted a major core value. <clears throat> and I think Greg Boyd was one of those guys with nationalism. Um, I think James Cone was like that for me in recent years. But the thing about James Cone was I had been familiar with his work as a kid because Black liberation theology, parts of it were taught to me as a kid. And I didn't even realize. So when I read James Cone, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Like it was, it was like I, the Black church, even though we were very conservative, there were still elements of some of liberation theology that mm -hmm. were yeah. injected in that. And my dad was very much bringing some of that back in the 90s. Uh, we even celebrated Kwanzaa and all that stuff. Uh, we were super pro-Black, uh, Afrocentric. But um, I would say James Cone was one of those people. And then, then Rene Girard did something that I just, I, I thought was kind of, well, the interesting thing is I, I think it deserves real critique, not critique, excuse me, it deserves real analysis to look at um, the work of Rene Girard and the scapegoat as it relates to black liberation theology main, or the impact of white supremacy. Because it seems to me that Rene Girard, without explicitly saying it, is very much pulling on the black liberation struggle as his metric for the scapegoat. And I know that in the recent bio biography book of his, The Evolution of Desire, that just came out, la I think last year, Bernstein gave me a copy. Um, there's this, I haven't finished the book, I read most of it, but uh, there's this kind of ongoing conversation about Rene when he was in North Carolina had uh, apparently witnessed a lynching. <laughs> and it seems to have like shown up at a, he, he randomly would, maybe would tell a few people here and there, but they could never kind of, so the woman who was writing this biography about Rene Girard, she's kind of hunting down, like, it seems this would be true of Rene that, but nobody could, very few people could really substantiate it. Only like two or three people said, yeah, he mentioned that to me. But, um, the thing about Renee and the scapegoat that I found so... Uh, Maybe explain that a little bit too. Yeah. A lot of people aren't familiar with that. Yeah, this, the scapegoat mechanism that Renee talks about, well, there's two things, let's back up. He talks about this theory he created called mimetic theory. And mimetic theory um, theorizes that humans don't just mimic behavior, we mimic desire. And the, the, the thrust of mimicking desire in us is what sets up... Um, jealousy envy and rivalry between humanity because we begin to desire the same thing mm -hmm. and if there's not enough of that same thing then we enter into rivalry and that leads to scandal um and it leads to community breakdown and ultimately renee argued it would lead to violence and that's where the root of you know uh that's the mechanism and how it works um well yeah i guess i suppose it's mimetic theory but also that's the scapegoat mechanism and one of the things he did as an anthropologist but also a literary critic was he, he was just reading all the great pieces of literature and he found one common denominator is this triangular uh, uh, desire. You know, two guys are after one girl <laughs> and it creates a problem and it creates, you know, jealousy leads to envy or envy leads to jealousy and then that leads to rivalry and then that leads to scandal and then that leads to sacrificial violence. And so he was saying that all the best works of literature have this exact mimetic thing going on uh, and the scapegoating thing happening. Um, and also he would argue, you know, all of human history is doing that. Well, one of the things he did in the academic world, which was really controversial, was he theorized 
from a lot of the ancient mythologies, like that, like the the Greek uh, Titans <laughs> and like Poseidon and Zeus. And he actually argued that academia likes to read these things as like stories. Rene argued that they were actually hiding a type of hidden violence underneath them, and that these figures were what he called deified victims. That at one point in time, um, somebody was, you know, sacrificed in order to bring peace to the community. Somebody was scapegoated and sacrificed in order to bring peace to the community. And then in the aftermath of peace being brought to the community, people felt like, well, that person must have been a god because look at the positive thing that happened. Mm. And so then we start telling stories about these gods. And so he kind of like really like threw a wrench in, in a lot of <laughs> um, like... Uh, uh, academic work around um, these these ancient stories that the Western world loves to praise. And then he, so what he does is in a lot of his work, if you read The Scapegoat or I See Satan Falls Lightning, he's actually going through a lot of like Greek mythology and pointing out how um, these people were deified victims. And, and he shows it in the text. And one of the things that led Rene to Christianity was he said, a lot of the Greek mythology, it's only a partial revealing. You only see partially how this person could have been a deified victim. But in the story of Jesus, the, the scapegoat mechanism gets exposed completely on the cross because the victim is innocent. And that's the, 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 the feature of, uh, of being a scapegoat. The scapegoat is always innocent, but the mob, you know, creates the violence, they project their sin and their blame onto the scapegoat, and then they sacrifice them in order to bring peace to the community. And it's, he was like, it's an unconscious desire that humanity does this. And he was, he argued anthropologically, it's the roots of, you know, the ancient world, that this is the way in which we mitigated our violence with each other was to create these sacrificial systems. And then he's seeing it in the scripture, right? <laughs> like about in the old Testament about their type of like sacrificial system and Abraham and Isaac and mm -hmm. Abraham wants to kill his son, Isaac. And then uh, uh, supposedly God told him to do it. But you know, Renee argues, actually, I don't think God told Abraham to kill Isaac. I think that's what he thought God demanded of him because all the other pagan nations were doing that. Mm -hmm. And actually it was God who sent the angel to stop him and provided the ram in the bush. Now that story alone is, you might feel like, that might feel heady, I, I probably described it really heady. But when you really sit on that, what you realize is most of our evangelical Christian understanding is built on the idea of sacrifice and that God desires sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yet what we see clearly in the text is while it may, may appear that God ordains sacrifice, God is also seeming to want to subvert this type of sacrificial system. And, and so that's what Renee argues with the ram in the bush, like God sending an angel to say, hey, don't kill your only son. I don't desire that type of sacrifice. But if you need to sacrifice something, uh, maybe start here. Start with this animal. And, and then ultimately we get to the book of Hebrews, fast forward through the whole history of Israel. Excuse me, let's go to David. You know, David is the first prophet to actually just say out of his mouth, sacrifice you have not desired. <laughs> Mm -hmm. in a sacrificial system that wait god doesn't desire sacrifice i thought our whole idea of atoning for sin and, and uh getting close to god was through this na the nature of sacrifice the logic of sacrifice really um and when we get to jesus and the you know what we then discover is this isn't the heart of god at all to the point where jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb to to take away the sin of the world but really it's just to expose the sin of the world and that's why he's the final lamb slain because he's like hey you don't need to scapegoat if you need a scapegoat i'll be the scapegoat but don't scapegoat anymore 
Yeah, which is the the big shift for because a lot of people would say uh, that the story of Jesus and the crucifixion is the ultimate confirmation that God really, really wants sacrifice. Yeah. Right. And and Gerard's saying no, no, it's the opposite. Like this is this is the final thing meant to be. Like this is not what it's about. It's not what it's about. And the book of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear, obviously, years later, post the, you know, crucifixion, that, you know, it sets up this whole glorification of the sacrificial system only to say the blood of bulls and goats doesn't do. <laughs> that it's, it's, it's not enough. And, and it actually was never enough to begin with. But that's what we needed. We needed the sacrifice. We needed the blood. And that was the one thing that, that began to stand out to me with Rene Girard. It's like, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. It's like, oh, we desired the blood of Jesus. We did, we did, my, like, this is how we, and then in that way, it's like, oh, this is how I crucified Christ. Because every time I, I scapegoat my brother, you know, every time I enter into blame and accusation, which leads to jealousy, envy, rivalry, and scapegoating, I am re-crucifying Christ. Like, I desire to do this. There's something innate in me. Why? Because we mimic desire. <laughs> and we can't help it. There's something uh, inside of us that, that needs to mimic desire. But yet here Jesus comes along and says, don't be like your father, the devil, be like your father, in heaven, who was good, patient, kind, loving. Mm. He was like, you're going to mimic. Jesus was all offering an alternative path. He was like, you are going to mimic. You're human. You're going to mimic. Who are you going to mimic though? Are you going to mimic the satanic power, which desires sacrifice above all else, which, which desires violence and, and says that God uses violence to accomplish his purposes, which is what the ancient Old Testament system ultimately was confirming and what our basic human nature sometimes confirms too. Um, or are you going to enter into a positive nemesis, as Renee would call it, um, and be like your father in heaven who is loving, gracious, kind, forgiving, lays down his life for his enemies rather than uh, execs punishment on his enemies. So that is a big shift from um, the retributive, which is like another way of saying violent, punishing gospel that was given, that God commanded, you know, uh, Jesus to be punished for my sake. <laughs> God commanded an innocent person to like, you know, to do what? <laughs> It's, it's like, when you put it in those terms, it's actually, you, you sort of see how um, barbaric it is and how a lot of the ancient world was ruled with that type of empire thinking, which said that the conquerors win, that those who are violent are the ones who shape history or, or they're the ones who are, they're, they're fulfilling the will of God. And actually what I argue with Michael on the liturgist episode was that um, the foundation of, of our world today is built on concern for the victim which is a relatively new thing in, in, uh, on a mass scale in human history. Most of yeah, the ancient yeah. writings weren't doing that. And, and Rene argues the Bible is really the, only, the first religious text and the first, he argues the first literary text to completely argue that the victim is innocent and not guilty as the conquerors would, would say. Yeah, I think that's a huge shift, that, that idea, because you can look back and see this kind of imperial thinking and... I think you can see even after um, Christianity embraces empire and becomes empire, yeah, there that thread of of anti-imperialism of anti-scapegoating can't be killed, and it keeps cropping up, and, mm. it, and it changes the way that society sees a bunch of these things in in ways that I think a lot of people don't realize, like. 
That's they don't give it credit for. And that's what Rene argued in the academic world. He says, you're so biased against Christianity that you are unwilling, you praise these Greek, you know, mythologies and, but can't actually see how the gospel narrative actually unmasks the hidden violence that's intrinsic in these texts. Which is, it's hard to blame someone for it when the majority of Christianity they see is imperialistic. And, yeah, you're right. Um, and when you said the, the winners or whatever, it just, I don't know if you saw that clip of William Barr recently saying, uh, they were asking him, like, when people look back on, I think they were talking about when they dispersed the protesters um, from in front of the White House, who we were peacefully protesting as Trump is set, talking about supporting peaceful protesters and then they uh, drive them away with violence. Uh, he's asked, you know, what do you think history is going to look back and think about this? And he, he smiles and says, history is written by the winners. And Oh, that is not even so, true. <laughs> and, and, so and brutal. It's so brutal. And it's also not true. But here's the thing. They're trying to revert us back to that type of worldview. They're trying to, and this is why what they're doing in the DOJ is so uh, evil, because they're trying to undermine the work that the DOJ has done, good, positive work, whether it was work in policing or prosecuting civil rights crimes or hate crimes. And then even more recently with trying to rewrite the narrative on Trump's corruption with the Mueller report um, and, and uh, you know, Roger Stone and, and Flynn and uh, trying to like get these people off. And what he, what William Barr is trying to do is he's trying to rewrite the narrative from the place of the conquerors. But yeah. what he fails to realize is that our our history will be written by, by the marginalized and the people because what the civil rights movement particularly, well, let's say the Emancipation Proclamation all the way to the civil rights movement, what it did, and this is why black people are going to always be the thorn of the flesh to dominant white culture, is we unmask white culture and dominant culture for what it really is. And now because of decades of, of black people beginning to flourish, beginning to... to uh, own their stories, beginning to tell their stories. It's, it's a tsunami wave of, of, of Black stories that have been, and Black resistance that is overpowering the dominant narrative and myth that, Amer uh, that America has created. And that's what's happening in this historic moment right now with people uh, and the protests and acknowledging systemic racism is actually we're saying no longer are we letting the conquerors rule um, our perceptions of reality or, or their false revisionist narratives of history. We are like, we the people are telling our stories and we're telling them from the position of the marginalized. So what William Barr uh, underestimates once again is he thinks retributive power, brute force power is going to conquer <laughs> all. And while it may work for a time, God ultimately has the final say and God's final say is a crucified lamb. Always. It's meaning that the marginal, that the victim is innocent and the victim has a voice and the blood of the victim speak. It speaks louder. The blood of, the blood of Jesus speaks louder, as the scripture says, than the bloods of bulls and goats. Uh, you know, the blood of Cain and Abel uh, speaks a better word. Like it speaks a better word. And that's the, the monumental, victorious, beautiful thing about what the gospel text is preaching us. But also in our current context is you're not going to shut up the marginals. You're not going to do it. You are not going to, there is no way in hell you are going to do it. And the fact is the gig is up. It's the powers and the principalities have been exposed for what they are. So now they're just using brute force to get away with it. Yeah, I think that's true. The idea that there is a monumental shift that's been happening and has continued to happen. And 
technology is a part of that and uh, democracy is a part of that, but there, you can't, there's not just one narrative, right? That will no. go forward. Like it, the more that we have access to, to more and more voices, like the more these different voices will march forward and in the end will continue to expose, I think that the the deeds that are being done to try to silence them, right? Yeah, but that's you see that in the Book of Revelation, the the the, the blood of the saints and the martyrs is crying out, "How long, O Lord?" Right? Like every martyr, every person that you kill from police brutality, you raise up ten liberators, or a hundred liberators, or a thousand liberators. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. every blood, every every drop of innocent blood that is spilt, um, speaks a better word than the word of the conquerors and 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 you raise up you you radicalize actually and that's what we had to learn that a hard way in the middle east the more we started the more we perpetuated war in the middle i don't east, know if we've learned it but <laughs> well i think the, the people have learned it i don't <laughs> yes. think the government has learned it yet um but i think the people of america have learned like oh you mean our presence in this is actually just further radicalizing people because we're the purveyors of violence here yeah. um and, and the people are realizing that. The people of America in mass actually realize that, even if their government doesn't reflect that yet, um, which there's only so long we can live in that dissonance before things have got to change, whether not peacefully or violently. Um, and obviously, I, I think the, the gospel is pushing us towards a, a nonviolent resistance. Um, but you also can't, you understand it when it happens and it's violent, you too. I keep yeah. telling people, I'm like, what do you, people are upset about statues being torn down. I'm like, why are you, what are you upset? These, these idols of white supremacy, you're upset. Well, it's our heritage. No, no, it actually isn't because you're, you're honoring some of the most cruel, vicious people in our history. And, and I feel like the kids are right now, they, they grew up watching Harry Potter, man. They are out in the street hunting horcruxes. <laughs> and they are like, they're telling this, this world, you know, the, the, the power of white supremacy is found in these monuments and we're going to destroy them all. And uh, so we can get to Voldemort himself. Uh, and that's what's really beautiful about this moment is the people cannot and will not be silenced. And that's also the beauty of being, in my opinion, black in, the, in this country was I grew up understanding the dominant narrative, but I also knew it was false. I knew from a very young age that the dominant script was false just because of the skin color that I had. I was already clued into another narrative. That Did that change the way that you saw like foreign policy issues when you were younger too? Like, did you equate the way that you were treated with the way that the the country was treating people in other places? Yes and no. I mean, because the indoctrination is so strong. When I was in first grade, I went to Fairlane Christian. uh, It's an Assemblies of God private school in Dearborn, Michigan for like first and second grade. And I'll never forget, they ushered us into the gym for an assembly. And they had an ROTC guy there with, you know, the American flag in balloons, like the colors, the red, white, and blue. And then we were singing like worship songs, like our God is an awesome God. He, you know, like while like praising the troops in the the Gulf War. Christian school, yeah, yeah, is oh, okay. a is Assemblies of God private school, and unlike so that nationalism, you're indoctrinated at a very early age. So you know, W. B. Du Bois, who was a black scholar, talks that black people in this country deal with a double consciousness. Um, you're given a double consciousness at a young age, 
where I think white Americans just have the one dominant conscience, consciousness that they attribute, you know, everything to. We, we are given kind of the paradoxical thing, being Black, and just going, okay, we'll figure this out. So I'm given the resistance, but I'm also given the nationalism too, and it's mm. so prevalent, and it's so strong, and it looks good on TV. And, you know, and it's like, it's cohesive, and it looks good in the White House, and they seem strong, and, um, and it's, well, it's and a it's, wrestle. It's scapegoating too, right? Like, because it feels good to know that we're the good ones. Right? Yeah. And we're fighting evil out there. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're fighting the evil. Like James Baldwin said, you know, uh, you know, when you grow up, you know, you just think you're like everybody else. And then it comes as, a, you know, when you watch TV, I think he said it comes as a great shock to you when you're watching Gary Cooper kill off the Indians that you're the Indian. <laughs> that, like, you're, so here you are, like my dad grew up watching Gary Cooper and loving Gary Cooper, but also having to understand that he was the Indian in the story. That, mm-hmm. that, that Gary Cooper would have not been a hero to him, he would have been his lyncher. But yet, you're given it in such a polished, pretty Hollywood package that says, you know, root for this, this is the good guy, and these are the bad guys. And, um, now I feel like what art and entertainment and media is doing is telling stories from multiple vantage points and perspective rather than just the propaganda of the one like dominant empire script that, you know, Hollywood initially gave us in its first 50, 60 years of conception. Now we're beginning to have, uh, marginalized people's stories, but also we're beginning to see, uh, different angles to stories now because, uh, we're choosing to be more honest with our art. Um, and that makes that's actually in a, a positive way, and that's why I, I think a lot of the shift is happening too. Is because you know hip hop existed as a genre, as a you know a rebuff to dominant culture, right? And now it's funny that the one hated genre. When I was a kid, hip hop was hated. White people hated hip hop, you know, like. And now it's the number one genre in the world. Black culture. Mm-hmm. So much of black culture is just exported around the world as as dominant culture now. Um, and it's, it's just so, so bizarre. And so there's, there's, there's reckonings in and within that too, that, uh, are happening. a little bit of a shift but it made me think of uh i wanted to ask this uh from one of our patrons so you're talking about multiple like telling stories from multiple events um but it made me think of right we have people on multiple sides of a political spectrum or a spiritual spectrum whatever and so andrew was asking um saying in your quest for helping this country retrieve racial justice what role do you view uh, black conservative voices, he says, like Clarence Thomas or uh, Kenneth Owens. Uh, what role should they have in the discourse? Uh, is it right for conservative voices to be shot from media for stating their opinion? Uh, and he says, Justice Clarence Thomas once that to be black, one has spouse leftist ideas and democratic politics. Any black who deviated from the ideological litany of requisites was an oddity 
and was to be cut from the herd and attacked? I hate this question, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to answer it because here's, here's the reality. Um, there is a difference between good faith actors looking to solve problems and bring solutions to problems and people who are bad faith actors. Yeah. And I think what we need to understand is the difference between good faith actors and bad faith actors. Good faith actors actually can have real genuine disagreements, but are looking for the common good for all people. Mm-hmm. Bad faith actors are coming with an extreme ideological agenda and is trying to force everyone to conform to it. We do not have to worry about black conservatives being shut out of anything because guess what? They got a voice on the Supreme Court, like, like the ones, uh, you know, he just mentioned and also one of the highest ranking views on the, on facebook are views from candace owens the most watched like 65 million people who's shutting her voice off she obviously clearly has a voice that millions and millions and millions of people are watching but what it is is a lot of these black voices in my opinion are often bad faith actors who are who are are regurgitating anti-black talking points and and blaming black people for their own victimization rather than actually blaming the people who were the oppressors. And that's, that's a real value shift that a lot of these folks, and this is not all black conservatives because all black conservatives do not do this. I used to be a black conservative. I was a black Republican. I voted for John McCain and Mitt Romney. I never voted for Barack Obama, ever. But you know what I never did? I never scapegoated Barack Obama. I never said he wasn't born here. I never called his wife an ape. Mm-hmm. I never, uh, you know, I never... Um, challenged his blackness you know what i'm saying like these are all things that conservatives did even some black conservatives did um and the question they have to ask themselves is why why the hatred because the truth is um the conservative voices we don't actually have multiple angles in our political spectrum we have a binary political system in Mm -hmm. either or reality we could do better to have multiple perspectives um i think that's a little bit what they're trying to get at but i think your point of distinguishing between good faith and bad faith actors is because uh, from what I can tell, I, I don't think Candace is a a good faith actor. She's not a good faith actor. And here's the thing. There's tons of diverse views in the black uh, theological and liberation movement traditions. There's tons of diverse views. They didn't all agree on everything. It wasn't monolith. And that's why when even hearing the words of Clarence Thomas, I just uh, shuddered because I'm going, what this man is doing is he's actually projecting his own self-hatred onto everyone else. And the way that he felt, because he felt like if he didn't espouse leftist views, and therefore he was shunned. So then he says, this is what all Black people do. And that's just not true. I grew up in a family who very much voted across many different uh, political lines. I have family members, like my parents, every election almost changed up their political affiliations. My dad voted for Ross Perot. My dad was like constantly voting for third party candidates, right? Mm-hmm. My mom and my mom and dad have voted for Republican and Democratic presidents. And so to call, like, the thing is like what Which a lot is of these- super rare, I think. Like that most people do not do that because they're stuck in, I'm in a party and this is what, what we do. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, we're in a bad spot because we've only got two major parties. And so it just falls yeah. in every place. And it, it I does. think in places where you don't have that, people don't get so entrenched. Like you still have conservatives, liberals, whatever. Yeah. But you, it's not so much like 
team versus team, I guess. No, and here's the and this is why the problem is because there is a real theological uh, and political black conservative tradition, and I guarantee you that none of these people that are prominent figures on the black conservative right are even remotely touching that tradition. Mm. They are legitimately speaking anti-black propaganda and calling it conservative. They are they are they are perpetuating their own self-hatred and the hatred of other black people and getting paid to do it by white folks. Yeah, and, and it's it's oh sorry, keep going. No, I, I I can't, I, I, it's hard for me to underscore this because like I said, I, I was a black Republican. The, 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 black, the, the Republican party had a black RNC chair, Michael Steele, who no longer is with the party. And if you look, if you ask Michael Steele right now, what's wrong with the party? He's like, they're not conservatives anymore. They've given themselves over to racism and xenophobia, right? It's funny because he actually showed up at CPAC recently uh, last year and tried to speak and they were shouting racial slurs at him. The guy was the black head of the RNC. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and so this, this subject gets me extremely heated because once again, as a black person, I'm a Democrat. I am a Democrat now, but those black, I, it's like the level to which other people throw other black people in my face to say, well, what about those people? And they yeah. differ with you, mm-hmm. bro. It's so dark and it's so sick. And it's, um, it is, it's deeply hurtful to feel like your own people are being used against you, but willingly, like they're, they're willingly doing it and they're doing it for money. And, and then they're spouting things to white culture that are just not true about black culture. It's just not true that all of us are on some democratic plantation farm. Like it's just not true, but they need it to be true to justify their own racial hatred of themselves and their own people. I'm sorry if that's how I see it. Yeah. And then the other brutal part is that it gives the reason they're in those lucrative positions is because white people are using them as like their token person to be like oh look look no i i listened to this person and so no i'm not racist i'm not yeah no and exactly there's there's no racial problem um exactly so listening to one person is writing over the lived experience that they have access to from people that we have access to so many different sources and stories now and they're writing over all of it because this one person is you know getting a, a bunch of money to keep keep being that person for them yeah it is and uh you know in back in slave times there was always we 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 have white folks have always weaponized us against us always how about and, I mean, how about mlk like now mlk is like people i see all the time in the middle of all this happening right now taking some quote from martin luther king and being like see he disagrees with whatever like is going on right now and it's uh i mean he his whole life i think has been weaponized in certain ways against um yeah against black people against poor people because yeah he i mean as he went on he got very much more vocal about concern for the poor about uh being anti-militarization anti um like the industrial prison complex all like all that and i think that's very likely maybe why he was killed when he was because that started to be the focus and that was uh you know 
too anti-capitalist too yeah you know like it starts coming after you know the money and that well it's one thing to sanitize somebody's words and use it against us it's another thing to use living willing agents against us and that's what a clarence thomas and a candace owens is right like it's they're using us against us uh and again it's not good faith actors who are actually wanting to enter into dialogue with their own communities to help the betterment and healing and liberation of our communities there are people who stand on the outside of our communities who are black, who will throw stones at us and hang out with all the white Republicans and be like, see, they just a bunch of niggas. I told you they over there, you know, making a hero out of these criminals, right? Like, and it's just, it's so, it's bad faith actors. And the level to which white folks fall for the trick all the time, like unintentional white folks fall for it all the time. And then at, at worst, there are malicious white folks who again, prioritize these people, amplify them, pay them money, get them to come speak because they want that voice to challenge the liberation of black people. And they, and they use it. And there are too many black folks who are willing to sign up and say, I'll take that paycheck for that. You know what? You are right. Those people are a bunch of niggers and they just need to do better. And that's their problem. Instead of actually looking at themselves and what they've contributed to the, the oppression of black people. And so I just don't even know, like, I don't even know what to do with those people other than to just ignore them because I'm going, I'm trying to build something. I'm trying to build a more just and equitable world. And you know what, you know, who's not trying to do that? Candace Owens. Yeah. So she, I ain't got nothing to say to her. I I blocked her on Twitter two years ago. I didn't even want to be tagged in anything. I didn't want to see her post because I was like, she's not helping. She ain't helping. If you ain't helping, I don't, I, I don't even want to acknowledge you. And every moment I spend talking about Candace Owens is a moment that I don't, that I'm not building the healing and the liberation for black people that I want to see. Um, and that's the, but that's the purpose of it is to put, put us in situations where I have to sit on a podcast and, def- and go and say the things that I just said. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you for saying them. I, it's got to be super brutal just having to deal with the bad faith actors as they are attacking your own community and um yeah and I amplified all over facebook too amplified millions and millions and millions of views yeah i i appreciate you talking about it because i think it is important because the reach is so broad and intense um but yeah, I think that's a good word in general, though, to be looking for people who are good faith actors, to realize that there are people on a wide variety of topics and, and that disagree with each other that are trying to work for something good. And you can mm-hmm. disagree with someone and... Um, Everyone wants to have that conversation rather than the actual conversation of what are we going to do to stop police brutality or how are we going to fix systemic racism, you know? What do you think about Candace Owens' analysis of the... I'm like, you know, but ma'am... That's the thing about some of you white theobrogens, man. Y'all just, y'all be in the abstract and love talking about like, and we over here just like, can you like focus on our lives? Cause that's what matters. <laughs> yeah, And it's hard. Cause I, it does feel like all of it is just a distraction. Like I heard freaking talking about, she was talking about that George Floyd is no saint or whatever. It was just making my blood boil. It's like, fucking missing the entire point on purpose on purpose and 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 weaponizing it she she's so good at doing it um and and she's so articulate doing it that it it's it's stunning but it's it's also like i said it's i don't need uh 
And this is the thing about theology at the end of the day, as much as I've read and loved and studied and still do study, I don't, if I need a theology to tell me how to love, how to be, who to treasure, who gets dignity and who doesn't get dignity, I think that's actually the real up part, man. I think it really is because all those things at their best are pointing us to do the actual work of loving people. They're teaching us to do the actual work of showing up in the world and making a difference. You don't need a theology. You don't need uh, a, a sociology. You don't need an anthropology to know that, that love matters, <laughs> that love is, is worth giving yourself over to and worth serving people who are down and out. Like, and and it's, here's the thing. We're so Western, we need it. <laughs> like, we're such taught to be abstract thinkers that we, we think first, then we do instead of actually the very thing that is embedded inside of us to me, which is the heart of God, which is to love. Um, and to me, theology led me into that place where I had to admit that I was more involved in the intellectual process of loving than the actual being of loving. And mm. I don't, until we can get that, that's why it's like those questions. I'm like, it, it, it is missing the point because you're trying to intellectually rationalize something rather than actually showing up and being with people who are hurting. Where's the empathy? Where's the actual compassion? Where is it? Yeah, well, what's brutal is I think a lot of times the uh, there's a David Bazan song where he talks about this, but basically he's saying like, when I was a kid, you taught me some beautiful truths, and eventually those things unraveled everything else you taught me. Like there yeah. were these nuggets within uh, the faith yeah. that were like, that's the thing that your soul was like, that's right. That's true. Yeah. That's good. And and everything, all this shit's built on top of it. And eventually, if you let it, those things will will well up and take away all of that other stuff. And and yeah, will be built there. All of it. Knowledge will pass away. What's going to remain? I would argue love. And I think the scripture says that too. So eloquently, Saint Paul says, you know, these things remain: faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. All of it. All the theologies. All the the abstractions, all the philosophies, all the, they're interesting. I mean, we just talked about it for how long? It's great. But it, if it ever is standing in the way of me choosing to love, I've got a problem. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's coming back to the idea of progressive revelation that you were talking about earlier. Like, if all those things are imperfect, then you're going to be growing in them, right? Yeah. And love's going to remain constant, but you're going to start to understand it more and more. And if you just get stuck on someone else's interpretation of it from, you know, thousand yep. years ago, <laughs> yep. you're spot. You, you have missed the point. You have missed the whole train, but you know what? We have a whole culture that's done that, so. Yep. We'll be free. If you have any um, consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you, in what sense? In any sense, like it could be 
yeah, like I mean, it could be taking a walk, it could be meditating, it could be having a glass of wine, it could be like whatever it is. Like, what what are those things that you've found to be helpful to your soul and your person? Um, I think noticing, stopping paying attention and noticing whether it's something beautiful, whether it's something interesting, um, or someone interesting, like actually paying attention. Um, and, and I get so lost in my head that it's actually has to become a spiritual discipline. Um, it's a type of meditation to stop and pay attention to something, even if it's for 10 to 15 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. So no, the art of noticing um, is massive. It, also, it, it brings me into more like states of calm and peace because there's a lot in this world that makes me angry, as you can obviously tell. Um, but with the rage that I think can, is useful and can be useful, um, cultivating anger and rage, but also cultivating noticing stillness and paying attention and quiet um, and calm. Um, Sometimes I use like apps to help me do that, meditation apps, um, or again, it could just be uh, walking and actually noticing beauty. Um, I think that's at the end of the day, that's what I want to be doing the most with my life is becoming more aware of beauty. Um, I love art and entertainment because uh, I think there's a beauty to it when it's done well. And so I'm always wanting to engage stories that are beautiful and that tell the truth. Um, And I like, it's like nourishing to my soul to watch a TV show. That's just very well done. That is, that is poignant telling, telling something truthful, even if it's hard. Um, I love it because it, it nourishes my soul actually. And uh, yeah. I love beauty. That's awesome. What What's a non-Star Trek uh, example of what you were just talking about? Oh, I mean, God, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I feel like there was um, something in your head when you were saying it. No, I, <clears throat> I don't. Well, maybe um, I just went back and rewatched uh, Downton, Ab- Downton Abbey oh, yeah. and several other Masterpiece Theater shows, which I thought were beautifully well done. Um, and I thought... just a subtlety of performance writing was was brilliant um sharp witty clever without being over the top Mm -hmm. um i just think there's something really cunning about that type of humor um also i was thinking of i mean these are all british examples but the crown on netflix is a is a a really gripping story about uh queen elizabeth um through different decades of her life and kind of told through fictional um lens uh but it's, it's telling the real honest truth about her life in those stories. Um, and I don't know, like, there's something really honest and guttural about it. And also, I think if you care about p- power analysis, there's such, it's such an interesting thing to watch it, to see how like, we shifted from, and Downton Abbey does the same thing, how we shifted from monarchies into democracies. And just that turn of the century and what that did in their culture, I just find for an analysis of power, like I, I realize how much of monarchical thinking is wrapped up in our Christianity as well as in our, even here in America and in our current political uh, um, systems, we mm. still carry a lot of the roots of that type of colonialism. And so when I watch it, that's what I'm actually noticing and paying attention to. Um, so yeah, those shows, I mean, I love, there's, I love comedies. I actually watch a lot of old shows too. Like I go back, I'm watching, I'm rewatching Cheers right now. Oh yeah. Uh, love Cheers, even though Ted Danson is hella sexist. Uh, <laughs> he does it really charming, which, uh, you know, it was a different era. Uh, but the cast and the chemistry of the characters is just brilliant. Um, I'm also, what else am I? Re- I rewatched uh, Taxi. 
I love Mary Tyler Moore, the Dick Van Dyke show, um, old black shows like Living Single, um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I've been going back through that because it's on HBO Max now. Um, yeah, man, I've just been like, like things that <clears throat> reminisce of my childhood. I really love to, to watch. Um, and yeah. And some of them, they, there was a beauty and a simplicity to them. Some of them were problematic and still are. Um, but yeah. So I can, yeah, I can't even tell you. I just watched The Politician on Netflix, which is brilliant. That show is incredible. If you haven't seen it, go watch The Politician. They, they just dropped season two. Season two has uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Bette Midler. <clears throat> and it's brilliant, man. It's just about this young kid who's, you know, running for politics, but he doesn't have a moral center. <laughs> and so the things he'll lie and get away with to, like, run for student government in the first season uh, in for, like, college. And then in season two, he's running for New York State Senate. Uh, and so it's, it's just brilliant. Um, and I feel like it's an accurate representation of, you know, a, a lot of our politics right now. But it's a comedy. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. Um, yeah. Have you, watched, have you watched Veep? I loved Veep. Um, Veep was incredible. Bro, that last season of Veep was so accurate. <laughs> I mean, all of it was accurate, but then I feel like that last season felt so current. I was like, man, to the idiocy. But you know what the same thing was? Uh, Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec really showed the idiocy of our politics. And then when Trumpism came along, I was like, oh, like this isn't just like a few isolated places. <laughs> like... This type of like mob idiocy, which to me in the town of Pawnee just overtly represented, um, you know, and it's silliness. Um, yeah, I loved all all that stuff. All right, last question. That's total non sequitur. I should have worked in earlier, but I'm just curious. Uh, are you have you read anything on uh, process uh, philosophy or theology at all? Um, a bit. I I, I don't have a grasp on it fully to like quite articulate it just because as a formal theology, I haven't like studied it, studied it. I have looked more, into I, it. I'm more asking cause I feel like you would dig it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, um, the funny thing about me is oftentimes I, I intuitively come to some of those places and things and think through them without knowing there's like a formal theology around it yeah, <laughs> or yeah. like a formal Hillary makes fun of me all the time about, cause I do that even with like, uh, actual, like, I don't know, brain things. And she's like, you just described perfectly so-and-so's theory of da da da. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even, <laughs> I just was telling you my experience. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm relatively aware of process theology and what it is. And I, I totally vibe with it so far, but I, I don't, not enough to where I could like, let me explain to you what I do or don't, you know, like I couldn't do that right now, but I should look into it more. Yeah. Uh, I can uh, recommend you some, some good starter spots, but um, yeah, the way it deals with, power like god's agency and stuff is is super interesting uh, hmm. yeah anyway i'm here for um, it. cool man thank you so so much for for taking the time uh and uh yeah i hope you're welcome uh, hope we can hang some time in uh the real life once the rona is gone well if you're ever around in la let me know um Oh, and then do you want to tell people where they could find out what's going on with you or? Yeah. Um, you, you can kind of discover who I am and what I do um, at williammatthewsmusic.com um, or follow me on Twitter, williammat22 or Instagram, williammatthewsx, I think it is. Yeah, we didn't talk um, about music at all. Uh, yeah, I have an album, music. Cosmos. Yeah, it's download great. my album, Cosmos. Um, it's on Apple Music and Spotify. Yeah, download my music. Listen, help me out. I'm an independent artist. 
All right, man. Um, cheers. All right. Peace out. If you have a moment today it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on apple podcast and share this episode with a friend uh, be sure to follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at carry the fire pod i want to thank my producer andy lara and all of our executive producers adam collins amy armstrong andrew diaz brianna webb brian weisbecker cameron lane colin hawthorne denise sugita david cobb drew para eric gonzalez gabe munis gary Jilke, hamsa babahani jeremy robinson Jess Card, John Buchan, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luca Leva, Luis Rivera, Luis Enriquez, Marco Padilla, Mark Francis, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Michael Maitland, Miguel Pinabroa, Nathaniel Bailey, Ron Alberca, Ryan Cornelius, Samantha Simmons, Sean Widemeyer, Stephen Saucier, Susanna Coleman, Ted Reiser, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Duin, and William Galdemez. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time. Oh,